0: TED Audio Collective.
1: This archival episode of Design Matters originally dropped in November of 2021. We're replaying it in honor of Toshi Regan's birthday, and because she's playing her annual birthday concerts January 25th through January 29th at Joe's Pub in New York City.
2: From the mountain down i started playing guitar when i was 14 and i was like i've played guitar for over 40 years that's bananas to me and spiritually i just really feel like i'm five years old so i just don't even understand the way time works
1: from the ted audio collective this is design matters with debbie millman For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Toshi Regan talks about how she has cut her own path through the music industry and survived.
2: It's a wonderful thing to wake up in the morning and feel good about who you are and where you are and who you're with.
1: Hi, I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. It's a podcast about all the thought that goes into things most people don't even think about. You're going to see stories everywhere. Follow and listen to 99% Invisible wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Folk, blues, gospel, rock, funk. Toshi Regan writes it, plays it, sings it, and produces it all. Her genre-spanning work includes an opera, The Parable of the Sower, based on the dystopian novel by Octavia Butler. She's been making albums since 1990, and her commitment to social justice rings loud and clear in her songs and in her beautiful, expressive, and powerful voice. She's here today to talk about her life, her music, and her career. Toshi Regan, welcome to Design Matters. Uh, Thank you for having me. Toshi, I understand that the first big rock concert you attended was when you were 13, and it was to see the band Kiss. Um, (laughs) So were you a big fan of their music?
2: Uh, Obviously. I, I really loved Kiss when I was a kid, and I still have a soft spot for them now. But, you know, they're a very exciting band for young folks or for anybody, but they are just very committed to their sound and very committed to the theatrics of the characters they were playing. I started playing drums like really young. And so they were like a fun band, like I put on headphones and play along. And later in life, when I was hanging out with Lenny Lenny Kravitz, he's a huge fan of KISS as well. So we, we both got to go see them together and then because he's really famous, I got to meet everybody. So that was a that was a big highlight to meet them finally.
0: I have a confession to make. Um, KISS was also my first rock concert as well. (laughs) Nassau Coliseum, 1977. I was about 14 or 15. Um, You saw them at the old Capitol Center in DC, right?
2: That's right. And the back, I was on the wall, the back, the highest Place you could go, and then I touched the wall. Like I was my last
0: seat. You're a little bit younger than me, so I think we probably sort of discovered them and and fell in love with them about the same time. Yeah. Toshi, your parents were active in the civil rights movement as you were growing up, um, which is sort of an understatement, but nevertheless, Um, your mother, Bernice Johnson Regan, founded the Grammy Award-winning All Women, All African American Ensemble, Sweet Honey in the Rock in 1973. Your father, Cordell Regan, was a leader in the civil rights movement in Georgia and co-founder of the Freedom Singers. and. You've said your mom's value system of resistance was already set in motion by the time she started college and was working as the NAACP youth secretary. When was yours set in motion, given how you were raised? Mm, I was really primarily raised by my
2: mom, but it was very beautiful and active community we lived in this uh, house in Atlanta and on the top floor was Vincent Harding and Rosemarie Harding too. Um, I think sometimes we say civil rights activists and then we miss a whole bunch of what people do. And, you know, the civil rights era, which comes out of the Southern freedom movement um, are, you know, specific things that we know about, but um, these people were just casting such a wide net of vision um and leadership and they were now I know they were very young and their lives like early 20s and it's kind of extraordinary so I was like really shaped by activism when I was you know three (laughs) two four you know because all of the adults that were around me were and that was what they all talked about and how they raised us they were not going to like send us someplace to go to school where we could be attacked for being Black. So they're very, very specific in how they were raising their children. And we really understood that.
0: You are folk music legend, Pete Seeger's goddaughter. You were named after Pete's wife of 70 years, Toshi Seeger. Your mother often performed with Pete. Were you close with the entire family? I mean, Pete
2: and Toshi I was close to, but I always like to say Pete Seeger was married to Toshi, Uh, (laughs) you know, and I know I'm like, and he's Toshi's husband and Toshi is a phenomenal, expansive, amazing, incredible woman. I I don't know if Pete would have been able to be folk legend Pete Seeger without her. And she really is the one that pulled together this idea of, you know, traveling, the Freedom Singers traveling across the country. It was my mom and, and Toshi who communicated in order to get them around the country. And that idea that you can do anything yourself that you need to, I really get very strongly from my mom and Toshi. And from Pete, I get what songs can do um, and how songs can pull people together.
0: Despite declaring at four years old that you wanted some Jimi Hendrix albums, you've stated (laughs) that your real goal in life was to be the first Black woman in the Men's National Football League. Yes. (laughs) What made you decide you wanted to do that? I mean,
2: I really love football. Football's like, it's so much fun. And it's such a great outlet for adrenaline. Now, of course, once you start throwing on pads and you know, and really hitting each other. It's quite a dangerous game. And I never got that far before, you know, I had a hip accident playing uh, sports. But I did at one point get to play with some guys that were much bigger than me, like, like high school guys. And we would have these like big games on the field of Coolidge High School. They weren't like with pads or anything, but they were just, they were tackle games and they would have first downs and things like that. And, um, this is my big moment of football is that I gained a first down in that game. Wow. That's impressive. It was very impressive. I got hit by like, you know, 16 year olds. I think I was probably 11 and I got hit by like 16 year old guys. And I was like, what the fuck? Like. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, it hurt really bad, but I got up and then I was like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. But um, definitely by the, by, I don't know. I see some women um, really, you know, joining the teams now. And I think it's, it's great, but I, I've been boycotting the NFL for like eight years because they, they're just a hot mess. Uh, that's a sport that could transform the cities that they're in.
0: You mentioned a uh serious hip injury you didn't get that injury from football you got that from softball is that correct
2: yeah i got that on softball so you were
0: just yeah. a general all-around athlete
2: i love sports i still to this day love love sports i think it is yeah i love it
0: it wasn't until that hip injury that you began to reconsider your your future goals and i believe that's when you picked up the guitar.
2: Yeah, it's kind of a mush of things, you know, in our in our family, you you sing, you know, so I was musical. Um, If you go to my grandma's in Georgia, like, you know, everybody sings and, you know, people sing out of church um, culture. So it's not like you have separated your singing from anything in your life. So I started singing when I was three years old. I never did not sing in my entire life. But I was like, I'm going to be a football player. But that didn't mean I wasn't going to do music. And Rosie Lee Hooks gave me a guitar probably when I was about 10. And so I already had a guitar. But I think when it was like, you you can't run, I was like, my focus is going to be music. And then that's when all of the things started to come together.
0: I read that you chose guitar specifically because your best friend, Daniel Lopez, wanted to learn (laughs) how to play. And you practiced (laughs) together every night over the phone, so much so that your mother bought you your own phone. Yes, Um, Why why were you practicing over the phone and not in person?
2: Well, he lived in Virginia, and I lived in D.C., and the school we both went to, Burgundy Farm Country Day School, was in Virginia. So, yeah, I would right out there, but after school, we both went home. And then as soon as we got home, we run up to my room and then we'd be like teaching each other how to play Neil Young songs, um, like string by string. It was awesome. It was one of the best things I ever did in my life.
0: Despite learning how to play guitar with Daniel Lopez, you hijacked your <laughs> brother's drum set and would I repeatedly did. play along with the LaBelle <laughs> album Nightbirds. Um, yes, and then I, I understand did. you moved on to congas. And then songwriting. So talk about when you first started writing songs, how how you started to write songs. I find that to be, I find songwriting to be one of the most mysterious, magical entities that exists.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I always had songs in my head. You know, when you're young, you make up songs all the time. Kids are always like, you know, but I think because music was, our love and communication language in my in my family, there was no singing that wasn't taken seriously. My cousin Cabanya, when she was two, we all banged on the, the piano. But all of a sudden, when she was two, we were like, wait a minute, that makes a little bit of sense what she's doing. And Cabanya is like an, an incredible singer and pianist. But when she was two, she was taken seriously. Her voice was taken seriously. My voice was taken seriously like, the second I like said any words and I think that that made like the idea that I could write songs very seamless it wasn't like I have written a song it just was like one day I'm writing a song and it was taken seriously this is before we had all of these portable devices where you could like record yourself so I rigged up two cassette machines and I would do like (laughs) multi-track recording which sounds crazy on you know these two cassette machines and my mom would listen to it and then she would critique it. Why does it sound bad? You know, and I'm like, because I don't have the technology, like I have to go into a regular recording studio. And then she started taking me to the studio with her. So songwriting in itself, I don't know that it's, it's so far away from anybody. And then when you do it, does somebody like take your voice seriously? And it's the same thing as anything one would do.
0: Do you remember the first song you ever wrote?
2: Yeah, I wrote this song when I was first teaching myself guitar called I Love You, (laughs) and it's like the simplest thing you could play on the the guitar and like the simplest melody you could play on the guitar and you could sing. And it just was some basic lyrics about, you know, I'm going to hold you tight because I love you or something like that. I was like 12 or 13. I got a little bit more better at it (laughs) as time went
0: on. (laughs) And I believe you started your first band when you were in high school. It was a cover band, right? You played Led Zeppelin, yes. Neil Young, the Beatles. Did you play Kiss?
2: You know, nobody liked Kiss as much as I did, so <laughs> we did not play Kiss songs.
0: I'm surprised. I think you would have. You guys could have at least played Beth, you know, that sort of a crowd pleaser.
2: No, that wasn't my favorite song. I like I Stole Your Love and all of the, like, you know, to this day, I try not to make people play things they don't want to play. <laughs>
0: And you were the drummer, not the guitarist at that point. I played a lot of different things. So we, you know, how
2: it is in school is like three or four drummers, three or four guitarists, three or four. So sometimes I play drums and sometimes I play guitar and sometimes I just sang. It just was whatever, whatever, who was ever, whoever was around.
0: I read that you also learned how to play the bass because your bass player didn't show up for a gig. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> then, yeah, we had the flakiest bass player, like, bless his heart, and he would just, like, not show up for things, and so that, yeah, that made me have to play the bass, and, which is one of my favorite instruments now, so I thank him for not showing up, but, yeah, a few times on gigs, a bass player has not shown up, and I've been like, okay, I'll, I'll play <laughs>
0: So it just comes naturally to you. Did you ever ever take formal lessons in any instrument or vocal lessons?
2: The instruments when I was seven, my mom tried to get me to play guitar and like and I hated it. I don't know if it's that the teacher was bad or that I just didn't like that idea of learning. Like it didn't make sense to me. Um, so the guitar, I really learned my on my own in collaboration with Danny and other people. And June Millington is, you know, one of my musical moms. And definitely, if she has a guitar protege, I'm probably her first one. And the people that I play with is very inspired by. And voice lessons, I definitely had to take voice lessons. My mom made me. As soon as she saw me like singing in bands, she's like, you have to take lessons. And it's not so much like singing lessons, but it's like how to use the instrument of the voice she saw i was going to tear my voice up and so we had the biggest fight me and my mom ever had was over me taking voice lessons which i hated then i did exactly what she said i was going to do i like injured my vocal cords i couldn't talk for 6 weeks and then i learned to listen to my mom and
0: wow. she says go to voice lessons why did you hate it so much was it the formality of it the the it's rigidity nice. or
2: It's just really clashed with, you know, my 14-year-old self. It is very formal. And, you know, singing isn't a whole body experience. I think like a lot of us have access to singing and we don't ever think about like my whole body is singing. We're just thinking about our voice and how we feel when we sing. Like so many things that we do, it's the entirety of a universe of systems in your body that create what is your voice, what it is that you do it came so easy to me i just couldn't imagine at 14 that there was any way for it to leave me or or that i could do something wrong now when i work with vocalists and they're grown ups a lot of vocalists still don't have that understanding and so they'll say you know i got get really tired in my throat or you know my shoulders hurt or my lower back hurts or and it's like their body trying to figure out how to make the sound that they wanted to make, but they're not activating the systems, the physical systems. At some point, you have to learn how to use that or you will not have your voice. Your voice will quit. And Pete Seeger is a great example of this. Like Pete, you know, his classic Pete position is like, you know, his, his neck is stretched out and he's singing and he's looking up. And that lasted for a long time. And then, you know, one year Pete's You know, he couldn't make a sustained sound and people will see his grandson Tao started touring with him to do the singing because Pete could talk, but he couldn't sustain notes. And then like miraculously, I don't know, some few years later, he started to be able to sing a little bit again, which probably was representative of a lot of rest. Yeah. Y'all singers out there, you know, find somebody, not a singing teacher, a voice teacher that will like actually incorporate the wholeness of your body into your singing and and don't do like I did unless you want like a six-week silent meditation (laughs) 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 which people are really into now yeah actually
0: I was gonna say I know a lot of people that pay a lot of money for that um Toshi you've said you have three musical moms your mom is first and you Mm -hmm. consider her the queen (laughs) and then two others (laughs) Nona Hendrix who achieved success both as a solo artist and as part of the band La Belle, And June Millington, a Filipino-American guitarist, songwriter, producer, educator, and actress, who also co-founded the Institute of American Arts. And I was wondering if you can talk about how all three of your musical moms influenced you.
2: Wow, we might need another episode on this. <laughs> <It's>, That's cool. <laughs> it's, it's pretty deep. I really think about my mom that we have traveled together before this lifetime. And in this lifetime, we are uh, mom and daughter, that this is part of one of our journeys. When people ask me, like, what they should, you know, do with their kids, I know they're asking me about music and, like, how to, you know, expose them to the music. And I think what my mom did was, like, you know, it's, the abundance of grace unlimited. I know when her parents saw me, when I was a baby, I was the representation of their incredible efforts to exist. These black people on both sides of my family, navigating the violent racist institution of the United States of America on both sides of my family understanding the preciousness and the miraculous gift of life and coming up through the time of our ancestors when they had to live through generation after generation after generation of ownership of their bodies and anything their bodies created, including life, and to the unimaginable acts of watching somebody either take you away from your kids or take your kids away from you to understand the multitude of systems that you put in place to house yourself and house your people. When people think you are criminalized, the second you come up with a unique idea of being free for those people to get to the year 1964 and see the first generation of our family that's not gonna pick cotton. (laughs) It's such a big deal. It's such a big thing. It's, I don't even have the expansiveness of language to cover it. And every single person looked at me like I was a reason for every single thing they have ever done in their lives to get to that moment. And my mom, I'm the first child, I'm the first grandchild on my mom's side of the family. But my mom just took me everywhere. It was no place that I couldn't go with her. And I think if there was a place I couldn't, she would maybe think she was going to the wrong place and she just joined me to who she was and then when my brother came she just joined him as well and I think that the the sound of our people a lot of people make this line like you know when is art important when do you need art when what is the position of the artist and it's when is the what is the position of people When are the people's voices important? When do the people use their voices for this? What is the technology of sound? What is the technology of of sonic holding resolution of home when people tell you you don't have one? That's where I come from. I almost say before I'm an artist, I'm a person who has to survive in this wicked world. And the instrument I use is my voice and song. And then, oh, there's a an entity called art and, oh, it can be commercialized and, oh, I can make a living. This is all after that. But my mom brought me into the world and set the standard for how people should look at me and receive me. She and my family let me know like, that that was important to pay attention to you shouldn't just blow that away. Like you should know, like, no, they really looked at you like you didn't belong here. And now you get to make a decision if you want to stay. And now you know what you need to do if you want to stay. To be born and have people communicate that to you is a good thing. And that's why I got these other two amazing moms (laughs) because they kind of come from each in their own way, a similar line. June Millington is the first woman I saw play electric guitar and like use effects pedals. So my mom told me when I was like that day when my, my hip broke and I couldn't be a football player. And I said, I'm going to be a musician. My mom said, and you probably researched this already, that, um, you know, we'll learn how to be a producer and stay away from drugs. I, right? I was actually going to so, ask you
0: about that specifically. <laughs>
2: yeah. So I ended up being an intern at Roadwork, which was like an all- Women's production and booking agency started by Amy Horowitz. So I worked on all of the concerts, and Chris Williamson was doing like a concert at Constitution Hall. It was really bananas because that was like a big hall, 3,000 people, I think. And it was just filled with lesbians. Like, it was <laughs> just like, <laughs> it was like total fantasy. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It was like so many lesbians like, you know, <laughs> so um, and then June was the guitar player. She had produced Chris's record. I basically like followed her everywhere. And then she doesn't know why she said that, like, just when she met me, she just she said she saw me walk into the room. I was a kid and she was like, OK, that person's mine. And then from that moment on, June started to teach me. So the next day I went to where she was staying and she did one of her songs and she wrote me out a chart and I couldn't really read charts, but June Millington's charts are very beautiful and classic and you kind of can understand them. And she taught me how to play the song on a guitar. And then after that, she would send me cassettes of everything she did. I would get a cassette in the mail and I like to say I'm her first student. Um, Now they have the rock and roll girls camp and all of these things. She would send me how she made records and how she wrote songs. And then Nona, Nona was like the first woman other than my mom or Women in Sweet Honey that I identified that when you looked at the back of a record, the song was written by them. And LaBelle was, was such a big band. And then when we got the record, I saw like songs written by Nona Hendrix. And I can't tell you what that meant to me. It was so important when you looked on the back of Motown Records, it was so many songs that just said the corporation, the corporation, the corporation. And then every once in a while, it would say Ashford and Simpson or Stevie Wonder. You know, but it was like the, cor- and I'd be like, you know, I'd be like, who's the corporation? Like, what does that mean? In Bell Records, you had the name and then it would say Nona Hendrix. So I always wanted to meet Nona Hendrix when I was a kid. She had one of my favorite voices. And she wrote the, the best music, the most interesting journeying music, complicated, complex, meaningful lyrics and, and situations. And so when I had a record deal at, with Elektra, the best thing that came out of that, that deal, because the record never got released, was Nona Hendrix. They were like, is there any producer you want to work with that's already successful? They want names. And I was like, I want to work with Nona Hendrix. <laughs> and they got her, and I was like the the first time I was in a meeting with Nona Hendrix, I levitated, and from that moment on, Nona has been like a guiding, beautiful guiding light, and also just an expert in songwriting, and and she produced one time a, a vocal track for me, and just that like couple of hours of of working with her really really influenced you know how I I produce myself and produce my my vocals. So the three of them, it's a pretty heavy team. And I feel really grateful. And out of all of them, there's one thing when my mom told me to be a producer, her idea was that I had to be able to present myself because I, I didn't have time to wait for people to decide. Yeah. You can do it. And Nona was the person, because she had had a lot of experience in the business, Nona was the person who was like, these people are not your friends. And to take every opportunity like it's ingredients, and but know what it is that you want to make. And then pick the ingredients you need and leave the rest. And June was the person who was like, there is a system to recording sound and rec- recording sound very well. Take your time and learn the system's, that, you know, please you and make you happy. And all of those significant, really significant systems help to create, like, along with my own intentions, like what I do.
0: In addition to your mom saying that you needed to stay away from drugs and learn to be a producer. She also said, as you were becoming a musician and started to play with her, that she was going to treat you like everyone else and you had to show up. And if you sucked, she didn't want to work with you.
2: <laughs> were you ever worried you couldn't? Well, she never She never actually said that, but she she just did it. There would never be like, she won't work with me. That would never happen. But she, you know... When you're little and you go to work with your parents, like you get to see them in action. And so I would go to work with my mom and I would see her doing the D.C. Black Repertory Company, like song workshops and then creating things. I grew up in that atmosphere. So once I started doing it, I was shocked, but she treated me exactly the same and she had the same expectations and she doesn't give you a lot of preparation. Like, she doesn't explain anything to you. She's just, like, <laughs> as I got older and she started having me work with her, which, like, kind of started when I was 16. And she saw I started having talent in the studio and I started doing, produ- producing things. The score for Africans in America, that's mostly, like, a lot, the two of us. She did not tell me what we were doing. She didn't say hey, you know what, we're going to work on a score, we're going to do this, and we're doing that, and it's four different films with four different directors, and we're doing the da-da-da-da. I just showed up one day in the studio, and she put a microphone across from her, and then she did like this, which meant sing what I sing, and then I did not know the song, I did not know the words, I did not know anything, and I just started singing what I would hear in her mouth. And as soon as I got it, she switched lines. And that's how we did the vocals for almost that entire project. If you go listen to Africans in America, you'd be very impressed with us. You know, but with me, because she never said, hey, this is what I want you to do. You know? She was like, ah, I think it'd be a great idea if you did Steal Away on electric guitar. Here, I'll sing the line, I think. And then I would play it on a guitar. And, oh, what if you harmonized it? And she did it. So it's more it comes out of that congregational singing that I think she grew up with, which is like nobody ever taught you a song. Like you learn the song from being a part of the singing. And that's how she did me. And that's how she does everybody. Even with the freedom singers after my father died, they had a show and they asked me to do my dad's parts. Nobody taught me what his parts were. Like, I was just sitting there like, isn't somebody going to tell me? And they just started singing. And I was just like, uh, 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 <laughs> trying to figure it out. And when I messed up, they didn't go back over the song and correct me. They went on to the next song.
0: Has this influenced the way you manage your own sets? I understand that when you're performing, you don't, ever have a set list so you just write down 30 to 40 songs you're feeling good about and then see what the energy is like so yeah it seems like that might have influenced the way you perform now it totally did it it came from my
2: dad with the freedom singers never programming a set then my mother with sweet honey never programming a set and then me with big lovely never programming a set and honestly covid has like forced me to program the sex because we don't rehearse really. Like, or we have very little rehearsal to limit the amount of time that we're, we were together if we were doing something. And a few of the things we did on video, we had no rehearsal, you know? So I had to say, okay, we're gonna do these songs um, so people could practice on their own. So I, I have to do it. I look forward to being able to get back to that though.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we are already doing right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and now you want to tackle another. Or maybe now that you're taking your supplements every morning, you want to actually start eating breakfast too. Therapy helps you find your strengths so you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make the changes that really stick. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com designmatters today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash designmatters. In nineteen eighty three, after saving up for studio time, your mother booked you in a studio to record a cassette of songs called Demonstrations." And I have tried to find that everywhere. I have not been able to find it. Um, how would you describe that music today?
2: Oh, I'll send you one as there's it's on cassette. I mean, it's a young Toshi. You know, first time like you know, being in a studio. I was, I you know, she didn't come with me. She was like, "Here you go," You <laughs> dropped me off. <laughs> Thank God for Jim Millington because I knew a little bit about what I was supposed to do because you know. Um, but it's it's you know it's it's a young me. My, it's some of my first songs, and and I think it's pretty cool. It's the only recording of my friend Curtis McShane, who I went to high school with. Uh, he's a really good guitar player, and he passed away very young. You know, it was the only—that's how I I remember that. How important it is to record, and how important it is to like put down your ideas and and leave them leave them behind for other people to find and hold on to eventually. So, it got made into like you know hundreds of cassettes, and then the company that was distributing them closed down. They send back like the last fifty of them. So. I should transfer them and put them on. Yes, that out. you
0: should. It's you cute. should. Your first official album was titled Justice, which was published by Flying Fish Records in nineteen ninety. Mm-hmm. How did you first get that record deal?
2: I mean, it's not as hard. I mean, I think I'm sure I got it because Flying Fish put out Sweet Honey Records and, and they didn't have to pay for it. I paid for it. So I think that's how it happened. And now I think another label has it. And I'm like, give me back my record. Um <laughs> <laughs> that I paid I paid for a long time ago um but I love Justice um I Justice is one of my favorite songs and I and and by then I was like covering the Police song Walking in Your Footsteps I like a lot of the music on that record and I'm glad that it's it's still accessible and it's also around the time I went on tour with Lenny um his first world tour. well
0: how did you first meet yeah let's let, you can't just drop that uh, when i went on tour with lenny <laughs> <laughs> yeah you and lenny are very close you were, but you were a fan of the cosby show growing up and had a premonition that you and lisa Bonet, and then by extension her then husband lenny kravitz would end up being friends and that premonition ended up coming true how did you first meet how did you first meet them yeah, I,
2: you know, I want to be really clear. They like because people hear this story, and I'm so surprised. I must have said it somewhere, but <laughs> yeah. So I did. I was looking at the Cosby Show, like everybody, and I just it hit me as looking at it, and I was like, "We're gonna be best friends. It's gonna be like my sister." And everybody laughed at me because at that time, everybody wanted to be best friends, and everybody wanted lisa to be their, you know be their best friend but
0: don't they
2: still don't they still they still do i she's (laughs) you know little koi moon is the one of the best people who ever hit the earth so i think everybody would love to be friends with her but it happened because they were making a big video uh, in central park um for lenny's first record let love rule. And my friend was friends with the stylist for the video. Everybody was like starting out at everything. So Arianne Phillips and my friend, Lisa Tager, and they were like, you want to watch it because making videos was a big deal back in the day. And so we were just watching. And then at some point, Lilacoy was like, can you go over and dance in the video? Cause I like your hat or something like that. And so I, I was like, okay. And then we just like, you know, being an extra in the video. And then later they invited me to come to their house at some point And they were serious. That was the beginning. And then Lenny said that thing, like, you know, a lot of people say to you in your life, like when I go on tour, I'll, I'll call you up and you can come open some shows. And he really did. I, got to open like five shows in Calgary and Portland and in these different places. And then he was like, I don't want anybody else to open for me because the vibe is really cool. So do you open the rest of these shows? And I, I don't even know if the, my justice record was out, but I didn't have like people paid big money to open shows at that point. So another band had already paid. And so he would put me on in between that band in him. So that band would play and I would go in and sing three songs and nobody ever knew I was coming. It was a good break in to playing before people and them not expecting you. And so I went to Europe with him a couple of times and did like a, a bigger tour with him in the states and then he he took off into like the stratosphere. And we're we're, we're we are a spiritually close Family, but Lilacoy is really my sister for life, and then later Zoe came along, and everything is everything. It was such a, a really beautiful and generous opportunity, and came with a I think a lot of love and a lot of like organic, a lot of organic feelings, and so I've always appreciated that particular time, you know. But I make people take it off of my bio now because I'm like, it was 30 years ago. Like, let's stop. <laughs> <laughs>
0: like, well- you know, it was still part of your origin story. It was part,
2: of the, part of the beginning, of the, for sure, for sure, for sure.
0: By the time the tour was finished, a bidding war erupted in both Europe and the United States for your next album, and you signed with Elektra. And when you signed with them, your mother told you the only way it wouldn't work out was if you couldn't sing when you stepped out of it. And you did indeed step out of it. You left Electra after the label didn't release any of your material. I'm wondering if if premonitions seem to run in your family because of mm-hmm. her saying that to you. That's my first question about it, and then my second is, what happened? Um,
2: she, has, she's, she says the only failure you're ever having is if you don't if you don't do your art, like if you don't do what you're you're supposed to do. Um, I, I don't know. You know, the music business is really weird and it's di- really weird for different reasons and different eras of time. And it is structured at that time off of the economy of exploitation and ownership. Certain things have to happen in order for it to be worth it for a company. And it also had a lot of wealth. You know, this is kind of, you know, right when the labels started to, Shift that to A and R departments. Used to be very musical, you know. AR people used to be somebody, you know, who had musical backgrounds. And then at a certain point, A and R people started to be like lawyers and administrators and people who like to go to shows and you know, just and um, it was easy to spend three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand dollars on somebody and then be like, eh, I, I don't like this record. Like, let's dump it. Most of the artists on the planet that record music or or anything like that to this day, most of us live in a, a middle or lower middle situation. And that is not valued as success. So that if you are like, you know, waking up in the morning as a musician and you're paying your bills, that's not seen as like success. What's seen as success is if you are such a dominant person, force that you generate, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And so I think it was very easy for people to see that something wasn't going to get there, you know? And at that time, like records were failures if they sold 25,000 copies or 50,000 copies or even a 100,000 copies. And now people would be like, you sold 50,000 copies? Like, you know, that's how much the buying of a record is deteriorated. The monetization of music has deteriorated. And it's not because the money isn't there. It's just somebody else is taking it. So the whole business is just not built that if you are a person who records a song, you sell copies of the song and then most of the money comes to you. It's just not designed that way. And now it's, I, you know, streaming is just like, you record a song and people listen to it whenever they want. And maybe they know it's you and maybe they don't. And like, somebody sends
0: you half a penny and that's it. You know, going back to what you were talking about before about seeing Nona Hendrix's name on the album, um, that couldn't happen anymore only because 45 people write a song. I mean, it's unbelievable today to, I mean, thinking about the way you write music it's music, music and Lyrics by Toshi Regan, Music yeah. and Lyrics by Joni Mitchell, Music and Lyrics by Pete Seeger. Um, now it's by committee. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. I've, I, I, I can't even understand how it's possible to have 45 people in a room making a song, especially if that song is supposed to be representative of, of living. <laughs> does yeah, it doesn't mean- make sense to me. You know,
2: that technology doesn't bother me as much as that, no matter what happens with that song, it's still going to be like inside of the economy of streaming because the economy of streaming is like, it's free to listen to. And and it's not like somebody is making money and somebody is broadcasting it and that it's, it's not free. You know, if you have 45 people on a song and each, son- each time the song is played, it generates income. Then you're just, that's your decision to split it between 45 people. That's one point. But the other point is the technology is kind of like leads you there. And in some ways that 45 people ha- is correct. Right? If you are using sampling as part of a base of your song and you like sampled Nona Hendrix and Count Basie and somebody else and you made like a big fat loop, then you should pay them. The other part is that thing I'm saying about like, in order for it to be successful, it needs to reach a stratosphere. And so I think that has made people go, okay, let's set up a writing room and let's pull, you know, somebody wrote something in that room, somebody wrote something in that room, somebody wrote something in that room, you have to pay everybody. And you'll hear people break down songs and they'll say, well, like this song, we just use this from this song. And it's a small thing but you still have to pay the person. So I don't know that that's bad as much as it represents the technology that we have available for us to, to collaborate. And then the the understanding that people understand they should be paid for what they do, even if it's nothing, which back in the day, people didn't necessarily know. So a lot of Black people sold songs for very little money because they didn't understand publishing. And now... Every kid understands publishing. Every kid understands, no, I want to, let's make the sheet right here in the session so we don't have to fight later in court. All of the kids understand that, which is is, is wonderful.
0: Thank you for helping me understand that better, because I've always been really perplexed by why there are so many names in, in the production credits. Um, yeah, everybody got to put their hand on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, You've recorded, I think, 12 albums. Um, You also teach music workshops. You've composed pieces for dance companies, arranged the music, and performed on global tours for The Temptation of St. Anthony, a show based on the writing of Gustave Flaubert. You founded and ran the Word, Rock, and Sword Festival. You've worked with the legendary Robert Wilson on Zinnias, A Life of Clementine Hunter. Your career is so large and expressive and impressive. Um, Congratulations on being able to do your work in your Mm -hmm. own way as a truly independent artist.
2: Wow, thank you. I'm really grateful for the way that people laid a path for me and the way people said the path that I was making, even though it wasn't conventional, was good. I'm really grateful that I was seen by so many people as being important and of value. And I'm grateful to my community and my, my friends, you know, who I have grown up with, who are all like, you know, pretty amazing. And, you know, my best friend, Jacqueline Woodson, who, you know, we grew up together and we met in our own, we met because we were dating the same girl. Shout out to Liza McAllister, yo! <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: our only. Um, it's a good all. thing I already know that story. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd make you tell it on the air. Yeah,
2: no. But <laughs> Jackie, Jackie and I have like really watched each other, watched out for each other, and it really is something to get to. You know, a certain point in your life and realize you've been doing things for a really long time. I, I started playing guitar when I was fourteen. And I was like, i have playing guitar for over 40 years. That's bananas to me. And spiritually, I just really feel like I'm five years old. So I just don't even understand the way time works. Um, I I totally I feel the exact same way. Oh, thank goodness. Okay, well, I really do. I feel You, you the need to go hang out way. sometime yeah. and, and 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 meditate on that because. But I'm really grateful. am grateful for my life. I'm grateful for the journey and even the journey of like not being able to run around and be a football player and to constantly deal with, you know, the the original injury of my hip and just what it means to be a, a human being in this time. I'm super grateful to my family and my ancestors and, you know, the Regans and the Johnsons and then all of the family that I've made. I, I couldn't do anything without them. And so, and my family and my daughter and everybody, like, it's just, it's a wonderful thing to wake up in the morning and just feel good about who you are and where you are and who you're with.
0: I, I couldn't let you go without talking a bit about the parable of the sower, which is a major, major creative masterpiece. Um, and this came from Originally, this this work, that this opera that you've created, um, really started, had its seeds at Princeton University when you were teaching there. And I believe that you and your mom were co-teaching at the invitation of Toni Morrison. Mm. Um, was she a close friend of your family? Um, she was a close friend of my mom's, and she asked
2: mom to do it. And mom was like, I can't do all of the classes, or maybe Toshi will teach half of them. I don't know why my mom was <laughs> said that, but I'm really glad she did. And then she was like, can you come and teach half of these classes? And I was like, yeah. And, you know, I went to high school and I didn't go to college. And all my friends who I went to high school with that went to college were just like, you're teaching at Princeton? Like, really? (laughs) And I was like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. And now I'm on on campuses all the time with my little high school diploma. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it smells so good. Um, it's
0: awesome. It's awesome. Yeah,
2: I, I love school. So um, we needed a text. We are teaching mostly acapella um, music, Southwest Georgia, from where my mom's from, and, and then a little bit of contemporary Black music. And my mom picked Parable of the Sower as the text. And we both are already Octavia Butler fans, but that was the book that I just refused to read. Until that class, because the oh, first really? page, yeah, yeah, I started it as like, uh, uh-uh. uh you know, I'd already read a bunch of books, and I was like, I'm not reading this. <laughs> so, like, I knew I would get to it eventually, but it just looked, it just felt like it was going to be very scary, and I wasn't ready.
0: Yeah, but, for my listeners that that might not be aware of the book, um, Octavia Butler first published *Parable of the Sower* in 1993, and in the book, she writes about a fictional dystopian future. Set in 2024, and she writes about an immoral and ignorant leadership, a planet ruined by climate change and corporate and political greed. She writes about wealth inequality, shortages of water, housing, and health care, terrifying religious, race based violence. Um, Speaking of premonitions, it's almost like she wrote. 2021 for us Mm. Um, kind of makes Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale feel like a children's book. Mm. Um, What, what made you decide to choose that specific book? Well, once we did,
2: you know, what we were doing in that class wasn't like trying to write theater. We just thought that would be a good text to sing conditions that, you know, have existed before. And it would give us the opportunity to access music that we already knew and had And each of us wrote a song based on a book in that class. But even when we did that, we weren't like, oh, now we'll see what we can do. It wasn't until it was over that I was like, you know, can't we sing this book? And that's when we started to like investigate with Octavia. Like, could we like do something? And she was like, yeah, y'all can do something. And then mom got very busy and then some years went by and then I saw her. But we still wanted to do it. And I saw her when she was doing a book tour for a fledgling. And she was like, Oh, I owe you and your mom some paperwork. And she was like, just do whatever you want with my work. Like, it's okay. <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 no. We need them papers. <laughs> oh my goodness, bless her heart. And um, and then she passed away the next year. Um, so we never we never got it that way. But A couple of years later, New York City Opera, um, we thought we might do it there. And then New York City Opera, you know, closed for a little bit or went down and canceled most of that season when we would have done it. So my mom was like, I'm good. And I was like, I'm going to still do it. And then when she retired in 2014, we went and did the libretto and everything. We finished as much as we could. And then she retired in 2014 and she's like, I'm really retiring. Like I snuck some of the songs we had written into a show and John Tatek and Mayim Wong who were participating in Under the Radar Festival at the public were like, what are those songs? And I told them and then they were on it. Like the next thing I knew I was sitting in the office, Marilee's office and (laughs) I was like, can I try to do this again? And she was like, Okay. And she gave me, you know, a year to try to figure some things out. And then if I figured that out, she gave me another year to like, you know, do something else. And so that period of time really showed us like that it was possible and a team of people came together. But I insisted that we start in 2017, which was very short amount of time of development and you really should take five years or so. I don't know. Do what you want. (laughs) Well, it did have its
0: premiere, the world premiere at NYU uh, Abu Dhabi in 2017. So you you made that goal happen. Yeah.
2: And I thought it was important. Um, I really understood. I don't know if this has happened to you where you understand that like technically something might be better if you take longer time, but that in terms of meeting the moment, like, you need Momentum. to make it, yeah. And so I was totally. like, we have to do it in 2017 because her timeline is 2024. This next level of things, I think she's been really accurate. And the way I use the work is to build a, a, a path around the work of activism or creativity or just even simply people seeing each other and beyond the borders and beyond the rhetoric and actually like, really focus on our common conditions, no matter who we are. And I felt like I would want to hit 2020, 21 with five years of that already in place. That's what I've done with the work. And that the actual like participating, coming to a theater and seeing the show goes back to the way that you would sit around and witness something that you all already know.
0: The show has been described as a congregational opera. And you talked before about congregational singing. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what congregational opera means.
2: Yeah. You know, most of the music is sung by the cast, the whole entire cast. Almost, you know, there are some solo moments. There's some duets. There's some trios. But you, you almost never don't see a community of people activating on a stage or you don't or you will hear you know, a community of people activating sonically. And that feels really important to us. Most of our shows are very congregational. Like everybody does our shows. They're, they're like, you know, well, am I a lead? Am I a this? Am I a that? And I'm like, you're you're a part of a, a group. <laughs> and, and they're like, but am I going to sing? I'm like, you're going to sing all the time. <laughs> you're always going to be singing. And um, Purple's no different, but it's probably the one where this idea of communicating sonically is the way to really talk about very, very hard things. And you do that simultaneous thing that our ancestors did, which is if you are in any way sonically producing the conditions of your life, then you are in a state of testimony and you are in a state of claiming and declaring and whether or not anybody understands the language or what your song might mean, that you're even making sound. It doesn't even have to be the text. The, the text can be on the inside of your heart and the inside of your voice, but that you are creating an opportunity of, of home inside yourself. And so the most difficult moments that this story takes you through, unfortunately, resonate with The reality of what many people face on the planet today and the ability to actually be honest with yourself and believe what yourself is telling you is like a major opportunity to strike back at these conditions. But in the future of Parable of the Talents, when one of the Characters are asked, like, during the 2030s, like, why did we have to go through such a horrendous time? And this character says, well, I think somewhere in the 2015s, 14s, 15s, we let it happen. It's not as flippant as it sounds. We let it happen. It speaks to the way of this particular world and this particular time. Which can have you activating every single day, like you're working, you're participating socially, you're going out, you're you're online, you're you're turning your outrage to your your people, and you're not actually shifting the dynamics of the condition harmful conditions that exist. And if you are, it's taking too long. And so this story asks you almost to take that foundation that you might already have that instinct you already have. And if you're sitting there going, should this happen sooner? Should I do something faster? Should I make more of a thing? Like, like when you're in your house and around you, there is something destructive. There's one way you move. And when you're in your house and the destructive thing is happening in your house, there's another way you move. And should we be like, actually, it's happening in our houses right now and be moving that way? And that's, I think, what Octavia is trying to instigate with this story is that by the time it's actually in your house, you're a little late. Right. You know, (laughs) you're a little late. And she's saying, you're not going to be in control of when it hits your house. But if you acted like, It was in your house. When you feel like you're in control of your house, you could probably do something there. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be like, in your town, in your city, in your block, there are people activating. Do you know who they are? Do you know who you you live next door to? Do your kids know how to walk from your house to somebody else's house? Do you all have ways of transportation that don't require you to be on the internet. It's such basic things that you would want to like ask yourself now, not because like the huge gigantic disaster is going to happen, but because every day some little disasters are happening that take away the access you think you have right now to things that you need to exist. And you want to get fluent with how you actually exist in those conditions and you might even choose one day to be like you know what we're not going to be on these internets today we're not going to be tracked by these cookies today we're going to make an intentional decision to meet in a park and turn our shit off because it's important to unplug from these systems as a political statement You know, I'm not saying everybody has to do that. I'm just saying that if you start to give yourself other ways of communicating, other ways of seeing each other and to base these ways in like the the practicality of nature and and kindness, which is not the same as like liking people, but in kindness will give opportunity for transformation. This is what I have learned from these books.
0: Given the success of the recent stage production of Fire Up in My Bones at the Met Opera, the first ever opera written, directed, and performed entirely by people of color, do you hope to bring the show to Lincoln Center or even to Broadway? It seems like a 2024 launch of this show (laughs) would be apropos.
2: I mean, I would love to bring it to Lincoln Center. I think it would be awesome. And, you know the way I think about it too is like, well, wherever it's housed, how many, how many places could it touch in New York? Because I think that would be really cool. I mean, it's like, it's a West coast story and I'm always like, you know, there's some little things about like, and this happened in New York and New Jersey and this and that. But I, I really would love to have a real New York happening around um, the story because this story is about conditions. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's specific necessarily to everything. Although the last one we did was in LA, but it's, it's adaptable to wherever people are. So I would love that. I would love that a lot.
0: I think that we have to make this happen 2024. (laughs) <laughs> Toshi, I have yeah. one last question for you. It's actually rather lighthearted. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, it's something I discovered in my research um, in preparation for today's show that I was really surprised by, and I um, so I want to ask you about it. Is it true you collect flashlights? Wow,
2: well, you dug deep. I love flashlights. <laughs> yes, I do. So, what's that yeah. about? <laughs> yeah, um, light. Obviously, light. I love light. Well, you know, even before Parable, I kind of felt like I should have things with me in situations. And so I always have a book. I always have, you know, pen and paper. I I always have a recording device. I always have water. I always have something I can eat. I always have a flashlight. You must
0: have a heavy bag.
2: (laughs) You know, I don't know. I carry a backpack, but... I've always had I always have to use them. And then I bought flashlights and then I just like see an interesting one. I get it. And then my mother in law, Marlene, she gives me a new flashlight. So she's actually really responsible uh, for this. She gives me a new flashlight for Christmas every year. And she has found <laughs> so many forms of light. It's pretty amazing. They're always different. They're always pretty interesting. And it's and now it's a thing between us. So for the last like, you know, I don't know how long, she's been giving me all these cool flashlights. And then I think, you know, there's this song, Let Your Little Light Shine, maybe someone down in the valley trying to get home. And that's one of my favorite songs. And so that idea of of, of shining a light I just it makes me feel warm inside and then there's been many times when the lights turn off and I have had my flashlight and lead myself out of a dark place.
0: Toshi Regan thank you for shining a light on the world with your music and your work and thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you for having me
2: and um, everybody take care of yourselves take care of each other.
0: You can find out more about Toshi Regan, hear some of her music, and find out what she's up to on her website, ToshiRegan.com. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Master's and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.